right. Let's go before the Lord and pray and ask for his blessing. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day that you have allowed us to get together again to hear the testimony of Christ, the testimony of the Holy Spirit, what Christ has done to save us, to justify us from all things that the law could not justify us from. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your church body. And we pray for each and everyone who names Christ according to this gospel. May you bless them with the hearing of this truth whenever they get to hear. We thank you, Lord, for giving me strength to come back and declare the same story of Christ. May you help me. And also, I pray that you help your people with the ears and the eyes to see spiritual things. And it is in Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen. All right, good morning again, one and all, whoever is listening. I was off for two weeks, nursing an infirmity of the flesh. <laughs> and it's good to be back. And for those people who do not have direct communication with me on a daily basis, who are our listeners, if you don't see a message posted, it means I'm probably sick. That's like 99% the reason why you would not get a message from me. If I am well, I usually bring a message even when I'm traveling. If you go for more than a week without getting a message, then something is happening. I just don't not show up. Okay, I do not do that. And that means you have to be praying <laughs> that I get well soon and also be praying for me this morning. I am fine. I'm just battling a little bit of congestion. So pray that the Lord will help me to get through to the message. And also, the message that we have, I was looking at it last night. It's a Berean message. And that means we don't do a message just to have a message on Sunday. We do a message so that you come out with something that is very significant with respect to your understanding of Christ. And this message is one of them. It has a lot of detail. And it is necessary to build the detail because if you don't do that, it's very difficult to prove the story of Christ. So we do have the story of Christ in this section of Samuel 9. Actually, I think I misrepresented in my postings. I thought we were in Samuel 8. We are actually in Samuel 9. If you have been following our messages, you would have known that we would be in Samuel 9. So this morning, we are going to be in Samuel 9. 
And we have some wonderful, wonderful things of Christ from this story. And that tells you that the matter and the manner in which God has given me to preach the gospel is of the Holy Spirit. Because there's not a single book that you can go and read that has been written so far, any commentary anywhere, that is going to draw Christ and the gospel from this story as you're going to hear this morning. There's no book like that. There's no commentary like that. You're going to hear a lot of stories about Saul. You're going to hear a lot of character assassination of Saul. And people are going to miss the point. So, by the Holy Spirit helping us, we shall see that God was telling the same old story of Christ and of salvation. So let's go to First Samuel 9, and we are going to read from verse 1 to 14. And this is the New King James. The Bible says, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zero, the son of Bekorath, the son of Athia, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power or a mighty man of valor. And he had a choice and then some son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his son, Saul, Please take one of the servants with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the mountains of Ephraim and through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. Then they passed through the land of Shalim, and they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. When they had come to the land of Suf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. And he said to him, Look now. There is in this city a man of God, and he is an honorable man. All that he says surely comes to pass. So let us go there. Perhaps he can show us the way that we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But look, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread in our vessels is all gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have and the servant answered Saul again and said, Look, I have here at hand one-fourth of a shekel of silver. I'll give that to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he spoke thus, Come, let us go to the seer, for he who is now called a prophet was formerly called a seer. Then Saul said to his servant, verse 10, Well, well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met some young women going out to draw water and say to them, Is the seer here? 
And they answered them and said, Yes, there he is, just ahead of you. Hurry now, for today he came to this city, because there is a sacrifice of the people today on the high place. As soon as you come into the city, you will surely find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now, therefore, go up for about this time you'll find him. So they went up to the city. As they were coming into the city, there was Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. And that is the word of the Lord. And we have our title, Kish Donkeys Lost. Kish Donkeys Lost. And as I was reading, I found more titles. And one of them is, The People Will Not Eat Until He Comes. The People Will Not Eat Until He Comes. God is building another gospel sermon in the wake of his rejection by Israel. Samuel was old at this time and was getting ready to retire. Samuel had been the high priest and judge of Israel. And he had two sons, Joel and Abijah, who were judges at Beersheba. But they were corrupt, just as the sons of Eli. And Israel said they did not want these two sons of Samuel to succeed their father. So the elders of Israel gathered together and approached Samuel and told him that they wanted a king instead, a king to rule over them to judge over them and to go before them in all battles like the kings of the other nations. Apparently, the kings of old did not just declare wars and remain in the comfort of the White House like our present-day kings. (laughs) They had to go and fight the wars that they had started. They had to go to the battlefield and fight the wars. And I'm sure if that was still the way of doing things, we would have much less wars than we have. Because the warmongers would also get to taste the real cost of war. Watch the news. A lot of these warmongers on the capital, they've never been in the military, but they love war. They don't get to fight. Their children never get to fight. But Samuel was very upset with this proposal. But God said, do not worry about it. It is not you whom they have rejected. 
they have rejected me. That's what God said. But tell them what is going to happen to them because of this new king. His policies are going to be horrendous. They're going to be oppressive. He will use and abuse them, use them for war, use up all their strength to build himself up. Take all they have, make them poor, and make them his servants. And on that, being a reckoning of the evils of this king, the day was coming that they would cry out to God for help, And God said, I am not going to hear you when you cry out for help, when you discover that your righteousness, according to the flesh, according to the law, was not enough to make you justified before him. God says, I will leave you stuck in his power. As Chichi would say when she was little, she could not say stuck. She'll say, oh, daddy, I'm duck. (laughs) I'll leave you duck (laughs) in his power, stuck in his power. I'll leave you stuck in the poverty that he will cause you. God says, I'm not going to deliver you. And that is to say, this king would be a picture of the law. And that is the testimony of the law against a sinner. Because the law is not for building up a sinner in righteousness, but to make them poor by way of asking them to do the very impossible, which is perfection, and then condemning the sinner. So the law is the ministry not of life, but of death and condemnation. The power of sin is in the law. This is not said enough in much of the gospel proclamation. And if a preacher does not say this about the law, then you know they are going to put you under the rulership of Saul. Those are the only two alternatives. They are going to tell you to be under soul or they are going to be telling you about the rulership of Christ, which is grace alone. So Israel was clearly denying the sufficiency of God's grace towards them because God had clearly delivered them from the hand, not just of the Philistines, but the hand of the Egyptians. And in both cases, by way of a sacrifice, in Egypt, by way of the Passover, and in the case of the Philistines, if you still remember, Samuel offered a god, sorry, a a lamb that was still very young as a sacrifice to God. And by that sacrifice, they had victory over their enemies. So they had victory not by their works, or obedience, or weapons of war. So the people 
are clamoring for a picture of the Lord to rule over them. And I'll give you more details to show you how Saul was a picture of the law beyond the abuse and the negative things that God spoke to them through Samuel. So over the next two chapters, we shall be going through the installation of Saul as the new king of Israel. But we'll go to our text to develop the gospel testimony because we have a lot of nuggets. <laughs> First Samuel 9 verse 1. The text says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zerah, the son of Bechorath, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. So Kish was from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin, the brother of Joseph, the sons of Rachel by Jacob. And we know that Benjamin was most loved by Jacob and even by his, by his brother Joseph. But he, Kish, was a mighty man of power. He was a man of great wealth, a prominent man. And we have gospel nuggets being dropped here already in the introduction. And this is saying what? It is saying Tish was a picture of God the Father, the Almighty One, the Almighty God, the God of all riches, of wealth and power. So that will set the tone for the development of the story. And verse 2 says, And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel from his shoulders Upward, he was taller than any of the people. So Tish had a choice and handsome son. How much handsome? There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. And that to say, Saul was such a handsome guy attractive guy, and people would just melt at the mere sight of him. Saw the man for the White House, the kind that the American voter would vote for. Because in my reading, it is well documented that the taller candidate usually wins the U.S. elections. And let us hear from the researchers. This is what I read from thoughtcore.com about U.S. presidential elections and the height of the presidential candidates and who ends up winning. 
And this article was written by Tom Moose, I think, from October 24th of 2019. This is what he said. During one of the Republican presidential debates before the 2016 election, the web search company Google tracked what terms internet users were searching for while watching on TV. The results were surprising. The top search wasn't ISIS. It wasn't Barack Obama's last day. It wasn't tax plans. It was how tall is Jeb Bush? The search analytics and add a curious fascination among the voting public. Americans, it turns out, are fascinated with how tall the presidential candidates are. And they tend to vote for the tallest candidates according to historic election results and research into voter behavior. So, do the tallest presidential candidates always win? The article continues. Taller presidential candidates get more votes. Taller presidential candidates have fared better through history. They haven't always won, but they were victorious in a majority of elections and the popular vote about two-thirds of the time, according to Greg Murray, a Texas Tech University political scientist. Murray's analysis concluded that the taller of the two major party candidates from 1789 to 2012 won 58% of presidential elections and received the majority of the popular vote in 67% of those elections. The notable exceptions, the writer says, the notable exceptions to the rule include Democrat Barack Obama, who at six feet tall and one inch, six feet, one inch tall, won the 2012 presidential election against Republican Mitt Romney, who was an inch taller. In 2000, George W. Bush won the election, but lost the popular vote to a taller Al Gore. Now, in conclusion of the article, why voters favor tall presidential candidates? In the research paper, Tor claims, this is another quotation, sense and Nonsense about the importance of height of the U.S. presidents. That was the title of the article. Published in Leadership Quarterly, the authors concluded the advantage of taller candidates is potentially explained by perceptions associated with height. Taller presidents are rated by experts as greater and having more leadership and communication skills. We conclude, the writers say, that height is an important characteristic in choosing and evaluating political leaders. 
height is associated with some of the same perceptions and outcomes as is strength. For example, individuals with taller stature are perceived as better leaders and attain higher status within a wide variety of modern political and organizational contexts and court. So this is where Israel is. They have this sign of Kish. Saul, who is very tall and handsome, and people are going to fall in love with him at first sight as he is introduced to them on Prime TV. Tall and handsome and ready for the cameras and ready for that 3 a.m. call as the presidential hopefuls always are claiming to do better than the other person. Like, oh, I'm better to take that 3 a.m. call. <laughs> Seems like disaster always happens at 3 a.m., right? And the professing Christians would also say, oh, they pray at 3 a.m., that's when they can reach God the best. So the foolishness continues. But hear this about Saul. Hear this again about Saul. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. He was handsome than any man in Israel and taller than any people of Israel. And that is very interesting. God was not lucky that Saul had some good genes. There is no such thing as God being lucky or anyone being lucky for that matter. God is not about going through Ancestry.com to find out who is who and then choosing from a list of potential candidates who works best for them, who works best for him. He is the one who makes and qualifies. He's the one who made all things. Whatever and whoever God wants, he raises for himself. God raises people for himself to fulfill his purpose. So it is he who raised Saul. To be who he was for this very purpose of preaching the gospel. God is not reacting to Israel. Israel is she who is reacting to God's purpose. So Saul must naturally be attractive. And yet was not effeminate. He was not womanish. But how could that be? How can you have such a combination of beauty and ruthlessness in a person? You would not expect that a very handsome person, very beautiful person, would be ruthless. You would think 
that they would be very kind. They would be very nice. That they would not even dare kill a fly. These things are important to the reading of the text. Because if you don't do that, you will never be able to crack the puzzle. And if Saul had a Facebook or Instagram account, Twitter account, all of Israel would have been following him. That's just the truth of the matter. Everybody would have been following him. But in thinking that, remember God in 1 Samuel 8 told us about how ruthless this new king was going to be. And yet when he comes, he is looking handsome. He is too hot to handle. He is too hot to handle. The question is still, how do you mix beauty and brutality? And we could have had that as our title. How do you mix such amazing beauty and brutality? What is that a testimony of? What is God preaching by that? Romans 7 verse 12. Tonight. Romans 7 verse 12. Therefore the law is holy. And the commandment holy and just and good. The law is holy. The commandment, holy and just and good. And that is what was presented by the beauty of Saul and him being taller than everybody else. To say the law is it that stands shoulders and head above all sinners. In matters of goodness, in matters of righteousness, in matters of beauty. And yet, everyone is attracted to beautiful things. And there lies the problem. Everyone is attracted to beautiful things, and there lies the problem. This very beauty of the law is what causes sinners a lot of problems. In Romans 7 still, verse 10, Paul said. Remember what is just said. Paul said, therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. And yet the same Paul said in verse 10, so I found that the very commandment, the very beautiful commandment, the very righteous commandment, that was intended to bring life, brought death to me. The very king who was supposed to be very good to me because he was such a handsome guy, brought a lot of trouble for me. He was very abusive. He made me poor. So many are blinded by the law. That's the truth of it. All these confessions of faith 
The people who wrote them did not understand the law. They did not. Many are blinded by the law because it is the commandment that many suppose they can do. They suppose they can get life by trying to do it. The commandment by which they could please God by claiming to do it. And even say, oh, the moral law. They think that if they say the moral law, it means they can do it. It is the very holy commandment, the very ten commandments that bring death. The beauty of the law is your problem. And it is the goodness of the law that has many sinners attracted to it. And that is why much of the teaching on the law in the professing church world is crooked. It's false. Many do not appreciate that the goodness of the law is exactly what brings them trouble. Because of their own sin, because the power of sin is in the goodness of the law. The power of sin is in the goodness of the law. You and I are not good. And so when you mix Law, that which is good and that which is not good, which is you and I, you always end with death. So Paul said, when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. (laughs) The law was given to kill. The law is a killing machine. There's no way to clean up that. The law was given to kill. And that is the proper way to understand the law. It is supposed to produce death in you, not life. In Christ, it also produced death by reason of the imputation of our sin. But because Jesus was sinless, he produced life. But Paul said he discovered that this very good commandment did the very opposite of what he expected of it. This very good, handsome, seemingly handsome king is going to do the very opposite of what Israel is expecting. Bringing death. The law bringing Condemnation, not the righteousness that he had hoped to have from it. And Israel shall soon find out that this most handsome man was not as pretty as he looked. Because looks are deceiving. He is going to turn out to be a very abusive man a very abusive king. And many, not knowing how to read the testament of Saul, are also quick 
to make him a reprobate. That is not God's point at all. The negative things about Saul are not about his reprobation necessarily, but his testimony as a picture of the law over God's people because they had rejected God's rule over them. So God put the testimony of the power of the law in the person and life and rulership of Saul. That's the testimony of Saul. It's not teaching us about his reprobation. And that tells us that Saul was a picture of the law. He is the ruler of the people, very handsome, shoulders and head above the rest in beauty. And that means, as I say, the law was the most beautiful thing in Israel, but not to give them life, but to bring misery, to be a yoke of bondage, as Peter would say at the Jerusalem Council, that our father and ourselves could not even carry the ministry of death. And this is not anything new if you are a faithful listener of our messages. I've taught on this before in the story of Dave's son, Absalom. Let us hear the testimony of Absalom from 2 Samuel 14 beginning at verse 25. We'll just read two verses. Second Samuel 14. Second Samuel 14, 25 to 26. Now in all Israel, everyone acknowledged that there was no man as handsome, as beautiful as Absalom. From the sole of his feet to the top of his head, he was perfect in appearance. In other words, no, no blemish in him. Verse 26. When he would shave his head, at the end of every year, he used to shave his head, for it grew too long, and he would shave it. He used to weigh the hair of his head at three pounds, according to the king's weight. All of Israel agreed that Absalom was the most handsome man in their time, probably more handsome than Saul at the same age. Absalom came after Saul. From the sole of his feet to the top of his head, he was perfect in appearance, no blemish. The whole person. From A to Z, that's essentially what that is saying. From A to Z, every physical aspect of Absalom was perfect. No blemish. 
And with a little bit of makeup, he would have won the 2023 Miss Netherlands. <laughs> that was recently won by some dude. And we're told that he has such amazing hair. Amazing. And women love the term amazing. I think they use it more than anybody else. Amazing. It was amazing. <laughs> Girl, you are so amazing. <laughs> he has so much hair that he harvested it at the end of each year and would have made a ton of money in our time making Absalom wigs, selling wigs on Amazon. <laughs> Brazilian hair would have been second rate, cheap. Every girl, every woman would be on eBay, on Amazon, looking for Absalom hair. And there would be clones from China too. <laughs> like, oh yeah, China is making clones of Absalom hair. <laughs> but hear me someone. Why is this important? Because God is he who recorded this. Because he was preaching the gospel through his physical appearance. Absalom was beautiful. And God uses almost feminine language to describe his beauty. This is a very beautiful dude. And yet Absalom was brutal. He was merciless. Absalom was not a kind person. He was a killer. He even wanted to kill his own father, David. He attempted a coup that he may be the king of Israel. And Absalom's coup against David had almost worked because the people were attracted to his beauty. But Absalom and David cannot share the same throne. One must die. Absalom must die, and he was killed by Joab and his men. David's army commander, Joab, was David's army commander. And that is it. The law, Moses cannot share the throne with Christ. You cannot have a hybridization of the old covenant of the law and the covenant of grace, the New Testament. You cannot be under Moses and under Christ at the same time. It's not going to happen. They do not share the throne. Okay? So the law must decrease. Moses must decrease. John the Baptist must die. Absalom must die. And Saul is going to die in the development of the story. And that to say, that combination of beauty and ruthlessness is a testimony of the law against a sinner, not necessarily the evidence of the reprobation of the person. The point being, 
The law is good, but it is a killer. It is the letter that kills. The ministry of death and condemnation, that's the New Testament testimony of the law. There's no way to spin that. And God's saying, do not be married to the law. Do not hug the law. Do not kiss the law. Kiss the son. Not the law. Kiss the son. Do not kiss Mount Sinai. Do not touch Mount Sinai. Do not touch the ark. You die. As Uzzah. Do not be deceived by the beauty of Saul. And the beauty of Absalom, they are not good husbands. You need a better husband. You need a gentle husband. Christ Jesus. Not Saul. Not Absalom. They lead to abuse and death. Because that's what the law was given to do. So Kish had this handsome son, so, and someone may be persuaded to think that Saul and Absalom were types of Christ. No, they were not types of Christ. Why? Because of Isaiah 53. Let's go to Isaiah 53, verse 1 to 3. Hear this about Jesus. Isaiah says, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, Christ, shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. When you see Christ Jesus in his physical appearance, there's no beauty for anyone to say, okay, I'm going to get married to this guy. What is the attitude towards Christ in his physical form? He is despised and rejected by men. But men and women, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Saul and Absalom were not despised by Israel. They had all the beauty. They had the form and the comeliness to be desired of man. But Christ was despised and rejected by man. And that's the difference. People love the law because they do not understand what the law is saying. They love the law because they love works righteousness. And Christ must be revealed. The beauty of Christ must be revealed. It cannot be seen by sight. So to whom has the arm 
of the Lord been revealed, the arm of the Lord is Christ. He must be revealed. That's the only way you're going to know the beauty of Christ Jesus. Now, hear this now. In the development of the story, verse 3 of 1 Samuel 9. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. Now the donkeys of Saul's father were lost. Remember what we said about Kish in the opening. He was a prominent man, a man of great wealth, and that means he was a picture of God. And it is God who has the donkeys that were lost because of sin. And what were those donkeys that were lost? Or who were the donkeys that were lost? It was the elect in Christ. They were God's donkeys before they were lost. They were God's donkeys before they were lost. In other words, we did not begin to belong to Christ when we believed 17 years ago. Like I saw someone put a post on Facebook. Not at all. God already chose a people in Christ before the foundation of the world and gave them to the Son. And in this story, the elect are presented in the picture of donkeys because donkeys are stubborn, just like sinners. Ask anyone who has ever dealt with donkeys and they'll confirm, donkeys will bite you. They'll kick you. They do not listen good. And so Kish's donkeys were lost, but they were his donkeys. Even in that lost condition, they were his donkeys. And Kish now gave a decree and said to his son, So, please take one of the servants with you and arise and go and look for the donkeys. And this is where one is going to get tripped in their understanding of typology because they will see the son of Kish and immediately think, oh, that has to be Jesus. No. This son of Kish is not the Lord Jesus because I already indicated that Saul's testimony was that of the oppression of the law, not of the salvation and freedom that is in Christ Jesus, we shall see where Christ shows up. But this is not he. Hear this. He said, please take one of the servants with you and arise and go for the donkeys. In other words, the law is what is in the picture first. Saul represents the covenant of the law, and it is the law that was commissioned first to go look and recover the donkeys back to the father. It is the first covenant, the old covenant, that was given first 
to recover the lost donkeys. And how else do I know that this was the law, not Christ, who was in the picture of the son of Kish? Verse 4. How do we know that the son is actually not Christ, but the law? So he passed through the mountains of Ephraim, that's verse 4. So he passed through the mountains of Ephraim and through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. So and his unnamed servant passed through the mountains of Ephraim, but they did not find the donkeys as to bring them back to the father. Then they passed through the land of Shalim and they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. So three testimonies and Saul and this seven did not find the donkeys as to bring them back to the father. Because if they had found them, if Saul had found the donkeys, then it means the lost donkeys, the lost sinners are found and brought back to the father by the law. And yet Jesus said, no one comes to the father but by me. And also, theologically, as Paul said in Romans 3 verse 20, therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. By the working of Saul, by the working of the law, no flesh will be brought back to the Father will be recovered to the Father, will be justified in his sight. But we know this from Jesus. When Jesus showed up, he said of himself in Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The donkeys. <laughs> the Son of Man came to seek and find the donkeys. Because the first mission by Saul did not work. Three times the testimony, the law could not recover the donkeys back to the father. And that is to say the recovery of the ship or the donkeys is not the work of Saul. It is not the work of the law, but is of David. It is of the shepherd, David was the good shepherd of Christ, the good shepherd of the sheep, seeking and serving the lost. Verse 5, verse Samuel 9. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. So Saul has despaired of finding the donkeys. The law knows that it cannot bring the donkeys to the father. And to the servant who accompanied him, he said, come, let us return. Let's go. Lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. Two things. The name servant 
with Saul was a picture of the Holy Spirit. And that is it. The Holy Spirit plus law is not what recovers the sheep back to the Father. You cannot be sanctified by the law and the Holy Spirit. You cannot be made righteous by the law as to be brought to the Father. You need a different combination of persons so as to be brought to the Father. So the law acknowledges its own inability and says, let us go back to the Father. And we're going to go back to the Father empty-handed. The law is going to go back to the Father empty-handed. Saul must go back to his Father empty-handed because he had no ability to recover the lost donkeys. He says our time of searching is up. Our time of searching is up. And we have turned up with nothing. (laughs) Because the law never caused the salvation of anyone. Of course, I greatly appreciate that God has sovereignly caused the donkeys to be lost. For the purpose of soul to wander and find himself with Samuel in the outworking of Israel's rejection of God. God is the one running the the whole show. He has caused the donkeys to be lost, just as he caused us to be lost in sin. People say, oh no, God does not do that. Because he don't know what he's talking about. He's the one behind it. As he was involved in the donkeys of Kish getting lost, he also, 100%, involved in our getting lost in sin. And we must comment also on that and say, even the seemingly, even the loss of seemingly small and insignificant things, like what just happened to me, I discovered that someone stole my passport card and my Zimbabwean ID from my car when I took it for service. God was behind it. And he has a purpose to accomplish with it. So take it easy and calm down when you lose something. When you lose your donkeys, God is also behind it. He will recover things in his own way. They will be recovered. The donkeys are going to be recovered. Just not today. Not in this sermon, but we're going to recover the donkeys. <laughs> Verse 6. Verse 9. And he said to him, that is the unnamed servant speaking to Saul. And he said to Saul, look now, there is in this city a man of God. 
and he is an honorable man, all that he says surely comes to pass. So let us go there. Perhaps he can show us the way that we should go. See that transition. The unnamed servant of Saul has some knowledge that Saul did not have. Saul spoke of his inability to find the donkeys and bring them back to the father. But his servant had knowledge of a certain man of God in this city. And here what he said about the qualifications of this man of God. Number one, he is an honorable man. And number two, all that he says surely comes to pass. In other words, he is a true man of God. He is a faithful man, a man that God hears in every way. And this is the testimony of the unnamed servant. So that begins to tell us who he is by his testimony. And that was in reference to Samuel in the immediacy of the story. But in fulfillment, that is Christ Jesus in view. And that to say, the Holy Spirit who is in the picture of the unnamed servant, bears witness of this honorable man, this faithful man of Christ, as Jesus said in John 15, verse 26. But when the helper comes, the servant of Saul was the helper, right? (laughs) But when the helper comes, whom I shall send you from the Father, The unnamed man also was sent by the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. The unnamed servant of Saul was the Spirit of truth. He was telling the truth about Samuel. And it is good to know that Christ Jesus is more than Is more honorable, I meant to say. Is more honorable than Moses. Grace more honorable than law. Because it actually recovers and saves the lost donkeys. But there are many honorable men in this flesh by reason of their privilege, of office, of money, of power, of connections, but who are not faithful and surely are not heard by God. God does not hear them. And it made me very happy to hear from this servant that the Lord Jesus is faithful. And whatever he says comes to pass. And Jesus has said many things that I want to pass for me and for you too. And that's why we are gathered. If Christ was not faithful, we are wasting time. 
If Christ is not faithful, we are wasting time. We should be just dancing and eating and just playing right now. And one of the most important things that Christ said, this faithful man said, is in John 5.24. John 5.24, Jesus said. Most assuredly, I say to you. You see, that's the language of a faithful man of an honorable man, most assuredly, verily, verily, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is come, but is passed from death into life. I really like that line, shall not come into the judgment shall not come into the judgment. Because I have too many things that weigh me down as a sinner. Things that only God and I know. And they would bring me into God's judgment. And the last thing that I want is for God to judge me according to my sins, according to my works, even the ones that I may deem to be good, that will not work. The one who hears, if you can hear, it means you have been made alive. Both dead men don't hear. And the one who believes in him has been made alive. They have everlasting life. Jesus did not say, you have everlasting life and shall not come into judgment because you hear. Because of your faith. He is saying, your faith in me, your hearing of me, evidences that you already possess. You have already been justified and you shall not come into the judgment. The faith is the evidence to you given by God that you shall not come into the judgment. That's what Jesus is saying. You already possess. You are not believing to possess eternal life. You are believing because you possess eternal life. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the writing of John. And a lot of people cannot read that. This honorable man said, the one who believes, not the one who works, but the one who believes in him, lazy boy gospel, <laughs> shall not come into the judgment, but is passed from death into life. This does not happen at faith. I see a lot of people write things on Facebook and I can tell that they have zeal but they have no understanding. You do not pass from death unto life because of faith. 
you pass from death unto life because of the Christ who died. <laughs> That's when the transaction happened. The Christ who died is the one who translated you from Adam, from the sin, death, and condemnation of Adam to the life and justification that is in Christ. This does not happen because you believed last week. No, that's not how this thing is done. But let's go back to our text. First Samuel 9 verse 7. The amazing thing is, the most beautiful part of this message we have not even begun. <laughs> and that's a good problem to have because a lot of preachers this morning have nothing good to tell people. Verse 7, then Saul said to his servant, but look, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread in our vessels is all gone, and there's no present or gift to bring to the man of God. What do we have? So Saul said, we must bring something to present to the man of God. And that was the tradition. But the point being, the man of God mediated the presence of God among the people. Samuel mediated the presence of God among the people. As Christ being God also mediated the presence of God among the people. And none should come to God empty-handed. No one comes to God empty-handed. Even Christ. That is what the feasts were teaching. When they showed up to Jerusalem, you had to bring something. So when Christ died, he had to bring something back to the Father. Remember, the donkeys have been lost. Christ cannot die and go back to the Father empty-handed. So those who say, oh, Jesus died, but did not justify anyone, is saying Jesus had the testimony of soul, that he could not recover the donkeys. Christ must bring the donkeys to the Father. So when he died and resurrected, he brought the testimony that he recovered all the donkeys. He did not go back to the Father empty-handed. He justified the donkeys. He perfected the donkeys. He made them holy. That is the bringing of the donkeys back to the Father. That's it. <clears throat> and the servant answered Saul again and said, Look, I have here at hand one-fourth or a quarter of a shekel of silver. I'll give that to the man of God. To tell us our way. So the servant reached into his pocket and said, Look here, I have at, at hand a quarter of a shekel of silver. So the shekel would have been their gift. And that to say, the shekel exegeted the man who gave it. In other words, it, give a, it gives us understanding of who this unnamed servant is. 
So the point is not the direction of the flaw of the giving at this point, but the identity of the unnamed servant. In other words, the man who gave the quarter of a shekel was a picture of the Holy Spirit who is given as a gift because the shekel was being given as a gift. As in the story of the Good Samaritan, two denarii were given to the innkeeper as a down payment, as an instrument, as a guarantee. That also was a picture of the Holy Spirit being given. So that exegeted the Holy Spirit in the two denarii. Verse 9. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he spoke thus, come, let us go to the seer. For he who is now called a prophet was formerly called a seer. So that was the nomenclature of the day. A prophet was called a seer. Verse 10, then Saul said to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was, and they went up the hill to the city. They met some young women going out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? So on their way to the man of God, they met some young women going out to draw water. And these women were also a picture of the Holy Spirit. Water is very much associated with the Holy Spirit in the Bible, both Old and New Testaments. And that was Jesus' teaching in the book of John also. These women apparently knew about this year. So we're going to have the testimony of the women developed for us. These women knew about this year, the prophet, and his identity, and his work. As did the unnamed servant. So the testimony of the unnamed servant we saw is continued in the testimony of the women who were going to fetch water. So the story is not broken. More details are being added. So let us hear the sermon according to these women. Verse 12. And they answered them and said, Yes, there he is, just ahead of you. <laughs> Hurry now for today. He came to the city because, because they're giving the reason for the appearance of this man. Because there's a sacrifice of the people today on the high place. There he is just ahead of you. That is the testimony of the women. That is the testimony of the Holy Spirit pointing to Christ. There he is just ahead of you. That is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. 
points to Christ. John 16, verse 12 to 15. Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. The women are guiding Saul and this other man into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. These women were giving testimony of things that they had had, things that they knew about what was to happen in the city. And by who? They will come and tell what someone was in town to do. Verse 14. John 15 still, he will glorify me. That is the spirit of truth. See, he is ahead. For he will take of what is mine and declare to you. So they, these women, will be declaring the things of Samuel to Saul and his servant. The Holy Spirit declaring the things of Christ to us. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I say that he will take of mine and declare to you. So the women did not talk about themselves. When they were asked about the men of God. They did not say, guess what? Whilst you're here, guess what? We're going to have a baby shower next week. <laughs> We're getting our hair and nails done. Do you want to join us? It is acquired. No, they pointed to the man of God. They pointed to Christ. To say the Holy Spirit always talks things Jesus. The Holy Spirit always talks things Jesus. Let's hear again what they said. Hurry now, for today he came to this city. Because that's the purpose. There is a sacrifice of the people today on the high place. Today the man is in the city. And that defines the mission of Christ Jesus in his incarnation. He came to the city. He came to Palestine. He came to Israel. He came to Jerusalem for the purpose of the sacrifice. That's what he came. As soon as Jesus began to talk, he came talking about the sacrifice, about his own dying. Because there's a sacrifice of the people today. On the high place. This is an unusual sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of the people today. So there is a rehearsal. Crucifixion of Christ in this city. 
And the high place is the place of sacrifice. And this man of God has this high on his agenda. So the people are all gathered for this very cause. These women have a lot more detail about the man. That tells you that these are not just ordinary women. Their testimony does matter in the development of the story of Christ in this story. Hear this. <laughs> they continued. As soon as you come into the city, that's verse 13, you will surely find him. Before he goes up to the place, before he goes up to the high place to eat. They say, as soon as you come into the city, you surely find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. Do you see that there's been a transition? We opened the story. We saw in the seven looking for their donkeys. And see where the conversation is going. Saul has failed to recover the donkeys. So this is the next phase in the development of the story. The man of God will surely be found in this city and will surely and will shortly be going up to the high place to eat. So the man of God does not stop by at the local fast food joint, drive through to grab a quick bite on his way, get a double wapau cheese, <laughs> a side of onion rings, and 42 ounces of sun-kissed root beer. That would have been Sean's order with the extra ice. <laughs> he must go up to the high place to eat. That's where he eats. But what does that mean? Let's go to John 4 for the understanding of what that means. Let's go to John 4, beginning at verse 28. You know the story very well. We have a number of messages of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman. Verse 28 of John 4, the woman, and we call her Sister Sarah Samaritan. We gave her a name. <laughs> the woman then left her water pot, went away into the city, and said to the man, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him, in the meantime, his disciples ate him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. <laughs> that is the food that the man of God must go on the high place to eat, to do the will of him who sent him and to finish his work. 
and in fulfilling or in fulfillment. It was Christ Jesus doing the Father's will by going to the cross and saying, it is finished. That was the food of Christ. That was the eating of Christ at the high place on the cross. And the women continue with their wonderful sermon and say, for the people, listen carefully, people who are listening. Underline these things if you have physical Bibles. For the people will not eat until he comes. Because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, after the fact, those who are invited who eat. <laughs> now, therefore, go up for about this time you find him. So the women take the whole matter to the place and time of sacrifice. These are some great women. They're just supposed to be going to fetch water and they're delivering a whole sermon. These are some incredible women. And it is excellent. It is wonderful stuff. And this validates the authenticity of the hermeneutic that we have used to interpret the story and the stories. Because this does not make sense or is not helpful with any other hermeneutic which is not Christ-centered, gospel-centered. In other words, you cannot interpret soul apart from a gospel-centered hermeneutic. Because where these women are going with everything tells you that this is a gospel teaching. They said, the people will not eat until he comes. The people cannot eat until he comes. The people cannot be saved, cannot be justified, cannot be perfected, cannot be made holy until the Christ has appeared on the cross, on the high place, because he must bless the sacrifice first. The sacrifice must be blessed before the people can eat. Before the people can have the right to enter into God's presence. That's what is being said. He must bless it. And the cross is where this happened. People cannot just say, oh, Jesus accomplished salvation. What does that mean? But he didn't justify them. Well, then he didn't bless the sacrifice. He must justify the people because that's the blessing of the sacrifice. God's elect cannot eat until the man of God has appeared to bless the sacrifice. 
until Christ Jesus has come in the flesh and has been lifted up on the cross. And that is said, the cross was the place and the time of God's people's justification. For none could eat. That's clear teaching. I did not put that in the text. For none could eat. In other words, none could partake of the blessings of the sacrifice until he came and was offered as a sacrifice to God. That's clear teaching to me. Let's hear again from the women. I love these women. <laughs> Some good preachers. If Jeremiah could preach like this, we could say, oh yeah, I think God has sent it, but she's busy preaching foolishness. Let's, let's hear it. <laughs> the women say, afterward, that's the sequence of events. Afterward, those who are what? Invited. Who eat. Those who are invited. Only those who are invited. Who eat. And afterward, after the blessing and the giving of the sacrifice, those who are invited, only those who are invited. Invited by who? By God. Invited by Christ. Invited by God. Those who are chosen. Only the elect. This is particular redemption. Only the elect are they who have been invited to eat of the sacrifice after it has been blessed. The elect alone are they who are invited to come and eat of the sacrifice. So, there's two types of eating in conversation. Yeah? John 8. Verse 48, 51. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Is that from John 8 or John 6? I think that's John 6. So John 6, 48 to 51. I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh. See that? Which I shall give for the life of the world. The bread that I shall give is my flesh. At the high place on the cross. So there are two theological ideas carried in the eating of the sacrifice. There was the eating of the man of God, 
And that was a type of the eating of Christ Jesus as in him accomplishing the Father's will. As Jesus said, I have other food that you do not know about. And it is to do my Father's will and to finish it. So that is his food, part one. And then there is the eating of Christ by those who have been invited as the sacrifice, as the bread from heaven by those who have been invited to the banquet. Those invited, us who believe, eat not some physical food in the matter of salvation. We eat not the physical body of Christ. There's no transubstantiation here. When we have communion, we are not eating the physical body of Christ. That's not the correct idea. That's Roman Catholic foolishness. We eat the body of Christ by faith. So they invited come to eat the bread from heaven after it has been blessed. Not before it has been blessed. And offered. But the eating is not what causes their justification. Their justification is in that the man of God has appeared and he has blessed and offered the sacrifice and they were on the guest list. And as I said, that also speaks to particular redemption. The salvation is only for those who are invited the elect. Yes, the gospel goes to everyone, but it is not an offer for you to decide to eat. Only those who are invited are they who believe, are only they who eat. And so if you are on the guest list, you do not get to pay for your own food. You are on the guest list. You eat what has been provided for you freely. So this is no potluck business. There's no potluck business in salvation. (laughs) The potluck people are lazy horse, penny pinches. Grace does not penny pinch, but gives Katie everything that she needs and more than she could ever conceive. Everything is provided for you. Grace provides freely and completely. Grace provides freely and completely for the horse ceremony. And if you run out of wine, Jesus will make more. He does not send you or anyone to Costco to buy more wine. He does not do that. It's on him to provide. If there's anything that's lacking, Christ has provided. That's true gospel. Verse 14. 
1 Samuel, and that's actually our last verse. 1 Samuel 9, verse 14. So they went up to the city. Saul and his servant, as they were coming into the city, there was Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. So as they entered the city, who did they see? They saw Samuel, the man of God, coming out toward them on his way to the high place. And that to say, if we have the Holy Spirit, we should be seeing Christ on his way to the high place to be crucified because that is the place of our blessing. That is why Paul said in a different way, I determined to know nothing among you than Christ and him crucified because by and at his crucifixion, the sacrifice was blessed. That we may, that we may partake of it now by faith. So we should see Christ crucified. We should hear Christ crucified. We should preach Christ crucified. We should see Christ resurrected because the sacrifice was blessed and God accepted it. And we should see Christ seated also as a high priest because that work was done. So you see the progression. But in every Part of that transaction, we are seeing Christ. See, he's ahead of you. See, he's going up the high place. He is looking at Christ all the way. I want you to remember this is all happening because kiss donkeys have been lost. <laughs> The whole story is around this matter of kiss donkeys. The father's donkeys have been lost. And Kish has despised his son, Saul, to try and recover them. As a testimony of the Holy Spirit, sorry, as a testimony of the law, the beauty and the handsomeness of the son his ruthlessness and yet inability to recover that which is lost back to the Father. And Saul acknowledges that reality by himself, speaking on behalf of the law. He says, well, we need to be going back to the Father now because he's going to start getting worried about us since we have failed to recover the ship. Okay? So his servant and himself, they are coming back with nothing. And that is say, Saul as a picture of the law, even in his glamour, on Glamour magazine, in his beauty, it is not he who recovers the donkeys. And that saying, the law cannot save a sinner, 
The law cannot bring a sinner to God. Cannot bring the lost donkey to God. The law cannot justify, cannot sanctify a sinner. It is popular teaching that the law sanctifies, but it is false teaching. And this is what has led him this way. Saul has come this way because God wants you and I to know how the lost donkeys are recovered. God is behind their movement. God is behind their inability to recover the donkeys. And so I will end it here. The donkeys are still lost. And we'll make the connections in the next installment to recover the donkeys. Okay? God bless you. We are done for today. You need to go back and listen to all these little details. But they're very important. A lot of people, preachers, who are saying a lot of things, but they do not know how to tell this story. They think they know Christ because they've read a lot of books. You can read all books that you want. You can never extract this. We have to learn to listen carefully. Christ alone is salvation. And he already did it. We are not doing anything. We're just coming to the realization of who we are as the invited guests to come and partake of the sacrifice that he blessed of himself. Yeah? All right, amen. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these many wonderful words that you've revealed to us and taught us by the illumination of the Holy Spirit to show us the testimony of Christ, the inability of the law to recover the lost donkeys, even though it is beautiful. It is a commandment that is holy and righteous and good. And yet it is the very commandment that brings death and condemnation. I pray that you help your people to understand this, that this is not an anti-law teaching. It is the truth of Christ. Because donkeys are not recovered by law. They are recovered by the sacrifice. We thank you. We honor you for giving me the understanding and giving me strength to speak today. I pray that you cause the people to continuously hear and to grow in the knowledge of Christ. We pray and honor you. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, good people. Recovered donkeys. See you later.